and like that we've made it to episode 20 already. It's funny the uh, power of habit and how you start something and then before you know it you're getting towards a, a decent number but um, we've made it to episode 20 already and for this conversation we were joined by a really quite fascinating individual which is Daniel Bade, CEO of Diabade and Co, which are a independent corporate finance boutique facilitating some of the most complex transactions happening in the wealth management market today. Daniel has a a really quite remarkable story in that and it's a story that starts in East Germany around the time of the Berlin Wall and a time of significant change I think is a a fair observation. Daniel's life from there moves quite heavily into education and and latterly academia. He published several books but realised quite quickly that actually theory is one thing but application is another and pursued a career in corporate world. It's a career that accelerated at pace, I think that's a very fair observation. Daniel, after joining AWD, was quickly, well by the age of 28 initially, but then 29, was a ex-co board member of AWD Chase Devere. And at 29, I think that is a significant post to hold. So um, quite a remarkable story to unpick how he found himself there and managed the expectations of a young person in in that room. Beyond that, we talk about his time at Christie's and the similarities between buying a business and investing in a business and that of investing in a significant piece of art. If you buy a business for £50 million and you buy a piece of art worth £50 million, what's the difference? It's complicated, but there are similarities and both of them are centred around high net worth individuals, which is interesting in itself. But what's most interesting for you, our listeners, is that Diabade & Co are one of the leading advisory boutiques in, in the wealth management space, uh, very much at the cutting edge of some of the most complex deals that are happening in the consolidation space today. And, and Daniel has some really interesting observations on why a founder should sell and the things that you should consider today if you are looking at making a sale and the, the, the sort of emotional process that you should go through to make sure that it's the right sale and actually what does good look like and it's not necessarily just what does the business look like but actually what does it look like in the buyer's hands and how does that influence the, the valuation. Really interesting observations, a lovely guy, nice person, nice conversation to have and I hope you enjoy it. Hi Daniel, how are you? Hi Tom, I'm good. Hi. Hi. Nice to nice to see you. Um, I've been I've been looking forward to this one. You've got quite a quite an interesting story, Daniel. So keen to get into it. I hope so. And you know, as you can probably see in my face, also the sun is shining today. So it seems to be a good day for a podcast. <laughs> it's a good day. It's a good day. So as we've discussed, and I'm sure you've listened to many of our podcasts by now, Daniel. But the the purpose of what we're trying to do is to really understand you on a, on a, on a personal level. And um, therefore, what we like to do is to spend a little bit of time understanding you in your formative years and the places and environments in which you grew up, which I suppose made you who you are today. Um, I'm, I'm correct in saying that you grew up in Germany. Is that right? That is right. Um, basically, basically right. <clears throat> but if you go back in, into the old days... Uh, um, in the 80s when I was born, there were actually two Germanys. There oh, was indeed. West Germany and East Germany. And, um, you know, I was born in, in East Germany. So the, the less sexy side of, of, <laughs> of the wall. Okay. But um, when I was nine years old, you know, the wall came down and uh, a whole new world of opportunities basically came up. And, um, yeah, that was fantastic for me as a kind of, as a young man. You know, a lot of, a lot of change, right? And kind of feel like the entire kind of, you know, system basically collapsed. I was way too young to fully understand it, but I did understand that kind of 
things are changing and you know like uh, um, businesses that were previously at least existence yeah <laughs> and <laughs> kind of all, all kind of crumbled and and that basically then um, led me to the conclusion that I really want to understand how business how economics works and um, that's when when I finished school basically kind of the first thing that I did is I had to do a military service back then but directly afterwards um, I moved to to West Germany to study business and economics Blunton. so so do you remember the day the wall came down I find this fascinating uh, yes I do yeah because it was the 9th of November which I believe was a Thursday and okay. uh, yeah, I clearly remember that, yeah. And what was the... Obviously, you're a nine-year-old, as you say. You, you know, your comprehension of what was happening was maybe not like it would be if you were there today as as, a, as an adult. But do you remember what the sort of feeling and the mood was like in, at the time? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, at, at, at the day or in the one or two days kind of afterwards, yeah, kind of it was probably too much for most people to fully understand it, except for partying and kind of... You know, kind of seeing what's what's happening, and the town where I was born um, is basically like a two-hour drive away from the border. So, so okay. you know, we couldn't just kind of in the evening just you know just 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 go towards towards the west. But we did, I think, like maybe a week afterwards or whatever, kind of with the family and and everything. And um, you know, it was just a very exciting time. Again, I was nine years old back then, so probably yeah. too early to fully understand it. But. Um, uh, it's not just about the year 1989 or 90 when Germany was then reunited. It's about kind of, I think, the five, six years afterwards where basically everything everything changed, right? And there was, for me personally, quite a quite an interesting time. It was obviously kind of, I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 in that period of time when you were kind of starting to become an adult, try to figure out kind of, you know, who you are basically, right? And kind of... Yeah. Uh, um, and then you do this in an environment that is also rapidly changing, where pretty much all the adults that normally kind of guide you, kind of school and, and things like that, um, also have no idea what's actually happening. Kind of pretty much everyone um, lost their job back then, the environment or whatever. Yeah, kind of everything was changing, right? Kind of the old things that exist well, stopped to exist. New things kind of emerged. And um, all, the, all the adults were basically way too busy trying to sort out their own lives and you know their mortgages yeah. and god knows what kind of other kind of things they had to had to worry about right and for us as you know like young kids or teenagers back then um yeah. you know we, we didn't really worry about it right we just kind of saw the opportunities and back then you could do things that that you couldn't do nowadays right i mean you know when i was kind of like like 15 uh, my best friend and i kind of jumped on a bike and kind of cycled through germany and you know uh, um with literally 20 Deutschmarks in our pocket and, you know, nothing else than just kind of, just kind of wanted to see <laughs> what's, what's out yeah. there, right? So, which you can't really do now nowadays, but it was all full of opportunities, yeah? And, uh, uh, um, and that, was, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's fascinating. And you, and you came through that, and would you say that the evolving environment around you was a, was was influential in you wanting to study business and economics as you did yeah because because i mean in a nutshell um uh, um you know when i when i kind of grew up it was there wasn't really anything any kind of guiding star out there right there wasn't re it wasn't really clear to to us as kind of teenagers what's right and what's wrong basically because everything was changing necessarily yeah. that, that makes sense yeah um <clears throat> and what was very helpful for me back then i was very much into sports um, and you know, did sports basically like like six days a week. I was quite good at. Um, I did karate back then. Um, was actually quite good. And you know, doing sports, kind of having discipline and kind of work out and working hard and 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 so on was was quite helpful because I I you know what I did did know is like if you want to achieve something, you have to work hard for it. And and basically, sport um, was a really really good guidance for that. But it was also clear for me if I would stay in East Germany, for example, that. You know, because everything is really, really changing. No one can really show me how things are done properly. Yeah, uh, it's not an option, and that's why that's why as soon as I could, basically, um, applied at a at a university back then in, in Hanover, uh, and started to study there. Yeah. And your um, your time in education was um, was more significant than than most of the people that just go to university for three years and then move on and get a job, wasn't it? You you formally pursued a career in academia for a period of time. 
didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, I showed up there my first day, <laughs> and uh, like most other kind of young people, kind of spent the first three weeks or whatever just partying and just trying to figure out kind of where the, you know, where the library is and <laughs> you know where you can can buy cheap drinks and where you can get buy cheap food and stuff like this. Um, but then, basically, after that kind of phase, uh, which might take longer, took longer than three weeks, but um, you know, I started to really kind of enjoy the university and the opportunity that they had, and because you met some some amazing people, both kind of kind of kind of fellow students, but also people who came for lectures and 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 so on, and um, you know, you had access to everything that you wanted with great books and and, and so on, and I was very much into reading back then. Uh, um, and you know, I actually became quite good at academics back back then, and um, it was probably a bit, a bit probably a bit, a bit unusual. Um, so I finished my, my my master's degree in Hanover, but spent um, two terms: um, one term in the Netherlands at the University of Maastricht, one term um, in Los Angeles, um, and then when I had my master's, so I was already at three universities, and then I got accepted into a PhD program at the University of Rostock, which I kind of. Um, joined and had, had probably the smartest mentor that, that I can imagine, someone who came from Harvard and was like really, really smart, but um, uh, um, he was maybe a little bit lazy and didn't really mentor me as much as, uh, as I had hoped to. Oh, right. And then moved on to, to the University of Hacker of Mannheim, where, where uh, you know, I was, was hired to, to teach kind of certain quantitative economics kind of things. Um, and then kind of I realized, wait a minute, <clears throat> Academia is fantastic, and I really like that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's all ivory tower kind of kind of thing. So mm -hmm. um, I decided to to com complete and finish my PhD as soon as possible, um, and I finished it as kind of I think it was back then the second youngest in the history of the university. So you know the average is in Germany is thirty one. I think it was twenty six back then. Um, by that time, I published three books, and I realized academia is fantastic. I really enjoy that, yeah, and I sol like solving complex finance and economics and strategic problems but at the end of the day academia is too ivory tower and no one really cares what you're doing so i decided to basically say goodbye to the to the academic world and uh join the real world yeah <laughs> i love how you say no one really cares what you're doing i'm sure that's not not quite true but it's a nice way of putting it um okay and how so let's talk about that that transition then so you've spent you know quite a long time at this point in in education, in academia, um, you know, to use your words, you know, moving to kind of the real world where, you know, corporate environment, how did you find that, that transition from theory to application? Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that I was very, very good at solving complex problems. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I, I knew that, but I also knew that I had no idea how real business actually works. Yeah, I had all the theory, but no practical experience, basically, or very little practical experience. And um, therefore, um, I thought, okay, I need to figure out kind of how the real world works as quickly as possible. And I saw two opportunities for myself. Um, option one was either to go to something like a McKinsey or BCG as a management consultant and basically spend the next two or three years to see, you know, five, six, seven, eight businesses and, you mm -hmm. know, basically go there and try to understand what's wrong and try to fix it. That would have been one option. And um, I got very close to, to actually pursue that option. And the other option was, um, uh, um, you know, sometimes some very large kind of firms in Germany, kind of this, the kind of the C-suite level people, um, they look for smart academia people to become their personal assistants. Um, um, and um, I got offered the uh, the role as personal assistant to the group CFO of a very large German listed business. Um, that business was called AWD Holdings, and back then. Uh, um, was in terms of market cap, some of one of the top 50 businesses in Germany, right? And um, and I thought, oh, wow, I'm 26, and the group CFO <laughs> kind of kind of likes me and trusts me and and wants me to work for him directly. And I see this this big company with you know 6,000 staff and operations in 11 countries from the very very top. And um, yeah, so I decided to to do that. And um, yeah, there was actually quite a quite a big transition um, because. You know, academia is very, very theoretical, very, very mathematical, complex problems kind of style. And then I joined AWD, and the actual founder of AWD um, there was someone who was incredibly charismatic, and he basically started this business from scratch, um, and um, you know, <clears throat> sold it then 
you know, 20 years later, so when I was just there kind of in that period of time, he sold it for 1.2 billion. And, um, right. you know, you can imagine what kind of growth atmosphere was in that business, right? So where, you know, at, at university, if you wanted to have a new pen, for example, you had to fill out a form and, you know, generally goes to some specific office, just, you know, in certain office times or whatever, yeah? And at ALBD, you know, um, we had a private jet and, you know, big parties and um, went to fantastic kind of restaurants and, you know, just, just uh, was the, com the complete opposite, yeah. Yeah, it sounds, sounds amazing. And you, and you talked about the, um, so just to kind of link the two moments in time. So you talked about the um, uh, lecturer or mentor that you had at university as one of the, you know, the, the most intelligent people you ever had the opportunity to work with. And then you talked about you know, having been able to transition from that position to working with a, a, you know, a CFO in a high growth organization. How did how did you um, how did you manage that person in that in that new position to kind of learn and absorb and, and understand the business and the environment that's around you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, again, academia you meet very very smart people, but at the end of the day, um, most of them have not much responsibility. I mean, they're writing papers or whatever, or they're giving baby speeches, but you know, they they don't execute their plans necessarily they don't build businesses based on their ideas they just kind of write books or articles basically right yeah and what happened at awd which was was absolutely fantastic um again the business was was super high growth uh, probably one of the fastest growing uh um financial service business in europe at that point in time uh um and um they had a board of you know three main board directors one of them was my was my boss um, and my boss was also in charge of one of the country, some of the countries there, and um, uh, and also in charge of investor relations. And one of my first tasks was, again, you know, was a listed business, yeah, and um, um, to really support him on investor relations. And I realized, you know, I was sitting there my first month. I remember this was one of my first tasks. Um, <clears throat> I was given a presentation that was, you know, like three months old that we used to present to to investors, and I was asked to update that presentation for. You know, an investor meeting kind of the next day, and I knew that this was presented to, I think, something like twenty analysts, you know, from all the big firms who would then use that to write their reports about our firms. And I was sitting there late in the office and said, like, okay, what happens if I now kind of make a mistake on this slide? Yeah, and you know, like they think the number is I don't know eight instead of seven or whatever because of my mistake. Yeah. Um, so, so um, that was one of the absolute kind of challenging things of this kind of role because you just kind of sink or swim basically. Yeah, and. Uh, um, and there was absolutely zero room for errors. But on the other hand, um, uh, um, basically from day one, um, you had to do things that were that really made a difference. Yeah, and and I was invited to to join, in much, you know, at that stage, all the the meetings with investors, kind of saw their questions, and this was for me as, as a young person so incredibly helpful because on the one hand side you just you have all this academic knowledge, yeah, which is fine, yeah, and then you just kind of start to understand. How this 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 company with six thousand staff is growing in in eleven different countries, and he's just trying to get get your head together about all of these things, and then you're meeting these 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 analysts who are all very very smart people, but who look at the business from a very different point of view and ask you very specific questions about the business, and you try to bring this all together, and this was absolutely fascinating. Um, back then, yeah, what what an opportunity, what what exposure to get to use the um, education that you've had and to be very much thrown in right at the deep end and as you say sink or swim um so let's let's, let's kind of move that conversation forward then how how did your time progress within awd as you as you um found your feet in the business yeah so so at the beginning the first if you like um six to, to nine months or whatever where investor relations and supporting my boss basically with um you know, um, telling telling the potential investors that EWD is a fantastic company to to invest in, and, and that taught me a lot about you know what you can say to the public and what you can't say to the public, how to how to present certain things um, in a slightly different way externally than internally because people wouldn't really understand certain technical terms and so on. So it was incredibly helpful, and um, and um, it allowed me to to build trust with the rest of the organization. Yeah, because very often what happens is that, that you have an analyst or whatever who's asking you. I remember we had a 
had an investor day one one day and, and one of the analysts asked us the question like, so how does the pension reform in Romania affect your business, right? And I thought, what a question. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, it was a valid question and kind of it was my job then to figure out kind of as quickly as possible how the pension reform in Romania affects our business, yeah? And Romania was less than 1% of all revenue back then or, or something like this, right? But anyway, you know, and there were situations like this where you then kind of um, had to sort, find solutions incredibly quickly. And that's how you build, build trust with other people within the organization um, and also trying to you know, understand how, uh, um, how different things in the business are important for different people internally and externally, right? And if you very often you are a bridge and you basically translate different languages, yeah, because when you then pick up the, the phone to someone who knows something about um, Romania, that person has no idea what an, what an analyst is here or, or why they're asking the question and what happens with the answer, right? And how you have to kind of phrase the answer that, that it actually makes sense. So, so I learned a lot about this kind of, um, kind of, kind of these, these challenges and, and this kind of communication back then. And, and then basically two things happened roughly nine months, 12 months after, after I joined. Um, the first thing was that AWD was then kind of sold to a Swiss insurance company. Swiss Life bought AWD for 1.2 billion. So the, the, um, uh, um, <clears throat> the the company that was listed and that was kind of one of the most exciting things for me then um, that kind of thing would come to an end uh, after the delisting which kind of took about you know three four months to, to to complete and at the other point in time that was just when the financial crisis um, started um, and therefore there was a lot of change within the business and also um, it was clear that my role would would change quite significantly and and it moved significantly away from like more uh, um, external kind of communication and, and, and just kind of presenting numbers in a certain way to build the equity story more towards, um, right, we have now the financial crisis, um, the, the, the business was impacted in very, very different ways in the different countries. And uh, um, one of the operations, which was actually quite a large operation of AWD back then, Chase Devere, uh, which this was AWD UK basically, was very heavily um, impacted. And it happens that um, um, my boss was then also put in charge of the UK. And uh, um, I remember kind of was probably in 2009, um, just before the before the delisting, that uh, we had a press conference to pre present some numbers. And then one of the journalists asked the questions about, oh, yeah, what's happening here in the UK? Why is revenue down? Questions like this. And, um, and the board said, yep. We will look at this now and you know after this investor meeting kind of finished uh, my boss kind of came to me and said hey daniel that is your project <laughs> and um yeah you know a few days later i was on a plane to london um and tried to understand what happened at uh, our uk operations fascinating so so we've land we land in london um yeah, not 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 quite quite yet um you know because okay um what basically happened is like uh, again financial crisis was just kind of starting and the business was basically every every month was kind of going downwards and and one of the problems was that um uh, you know I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit but i was probably the only person who could speak english basically in because because everything else was in german there were more people that could speak english but you know i i, I had i was i was smart i could solve problems people trusted me um, my english was actually okay-ish and uh, uh, um, I was good in solving complex problems. So that's why they, they basically said, okay, you, it's your project. You have to, have, to, have to help to find a solution. Of course, it wasn't just me. But what it basically did is that from, from that point of time, um, I started to, to join all board meetings in the UK at a very young age. Back then I was 28. And, um, and of course, with some, some internal help and some external help, we then decided to to restructure um, was back then AWD UK and, and you know before the restructuring it was a business with roughly 1,000 staff and seven different operations and after the restructuring it was a business with roughly 400 staff and just kind of two operations and uh, um, I was heavily involved in that and um, I think got some you know it was a, were, were tough times right because when you had to lay people off and you have to yeah. were used kind of for the last two decades everything was going up and growing and everything was fine and then you had to kind of make some 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 tough kind of kind of decisions obviously kind of my boss made them formally but i had to to do all the groundwork um to prepare that uh um 
that was not very popular necessarily. But what it did is um, it turned uh, um, uh, um, UK basically around. And, and after we did this restructuring, there was a new strategy in place and, 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 and so on. And as part of this this new strategy, um, I was quite quite lucky because I was asked then to move permanently to the UK, um, and was placed on the executive of Chasteware back then to you know finish the turnaround kind of kind of plan because these things take more than just a few months basically, um, and then kind of uh, um, implement a new management information system basically and and to develop the strategy and um, you know being being on the executive committee of a for quite a large business at the age of 29 was, uh, um, of course, super exciting. But um, in fairness, you know, because I joined my, my boss, yeah, because I was an assistant to my boss uh, on various kind of board meetings before that, I, I was actually quite trained to be in board meetings and ex-com meetings at such a young age. But of course, when you're young, uh, you know, um, people challenge you probably a bit more than they would challenge you than when you're one or two kind of decades, decades older. Um, and, you know, again, comes back to what I said kind of earlier, right? So, so hard work and always being prepared and know what you're doing and, um, you know, help, help to, to get my feet under the table and, uh, yeah, contribute to some value creation. Do you remember, put you on the spot a bit now, Daniel. Um, do you remember a, a moment in time where you had to, really demonstrate why you, you had a seat at the table kind of justify your your place as the as the new young guy if, if i can call you that um yeah and, and and actually that kind of situation actually happened before i was put on on the ex school okay um because very often you have to kind of demonstrate that you're ready to a certain level you know yeah and, and then all only happens afterwards right but <clears throat> we had a certain situation where my boss, who was, you know, again, group CFO, he was then promoted to group chief operating officer, being in charge for the UK, chairman of the UK, right? And, and I were working on the restructuring for, for the UK. And um, and we were, we were due to, to, to fly to London to for a very, very important meeting about a specific kind of kind of structural change that was quite controversial, where the chair, the German owners and shareholders had a very, very different view to management. And um, my boss and I were due to meet at 6 a.m. at the airport in, in, in Hanover to fly to London. And I was already kind of checked in and was waiting for the flight. And I could see through the glass door um, my, my boss and he was waving at me because he forgot his passport. So he was not allowed to, <laughs> not allowed to travel. And, and I had to, had to go alone to that, to that, to that meeting. Um, yeah. And obviously kind of uh, um, um, there was kind of roughly, roughly six months before I got on the exec basically. Yeah. Um, so I went alone to that meeting, and uh, when I then showed up in London, you know, um, the, the the board and the exec were a little bit disappointed that they just kind of saw me, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, um, but I thought, okay, I have no two options. I could just kind of say, you know, like, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, you know, just do nothing, basically. I could say, like, look, uh, um, you want to find a solution. I want to find a solution. I know what the shareholders want. I know what you want. Let's maybe work out a plan kind of together that could work for all sides um, and use this as an opportunity. And uh, um, that actually worked incredibly well. We, I flew back to lot to to Hanover um, with um, the plan that kind of management was behind, and you know, and 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 kind of uh, the shareholders accepted that plan. And you know, I think I think that was kind of the one moment where where it became clear that the rest of the team um, knew that they could could rely on me. And um, I think that's basically. Yeah, there were multiple things, but there was one moment where I probably earned it and was more visible to to a wider group. And um, yeah, that was quite quite the moment, I guess. Yeah, I love these just fortuitous moments in time where you can't plan it, an opportunity presents itself, and you either take it or you don't, right? And exactly. um, perfect. Yeah, but so I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about Chase de Beer and being, you know, quite a young person in that environment, but I. I I'm really kind of itching to get into your time at Christie's, actually, because I find it <laughs> there are similarities between wealth management, high net worth individuals, and, and certainly Christie's. But <clears throat> you, your career for, for the listeners, um, once you uh, moved on from AWD, Chase Devere, you, you moved to the auction house, which is Christie's, didn't you? 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably quite and quite unusual. And you know, like um, I've, I should probably say I was on a secondment. Yeah, for, um, so so um, the Germans sure. take me, and if you're on a secondment, you can't stay forever. And then basically, after a bit more than two years, uh, um, the Germans wanted me back, and my back then girlfriend, my now wife, uh, and, and I, we decided, hey, let's stay, let's stay in London. Um, and then completely out of nowhere, kind of Christie's auction house made me made me job offer and. There was a lot on my radar whatsoever, but you know I'd been to an auction before, and um, and the, the the main reason was um, the, the 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 deputy CEO at Christie um, was used to the concept of you know board and personal assistant to board members because he used to work for another German company and so on. And <clears throat> when he saw my CV and then kind of interviewed me and kind of had seven interviews and he was the last last interview, he said like. Right, okay, I used to work for this German bank, he said, yeah, and there was this one guy, assistant with the big guy, who cleaned up all the mess behind the big guy. Um, are you someone who can do something similar? And I said, yes. Um, um, and and um, again, it was one of these things where, uh, you know, like uh, just kind of lucky circumstances. And um, I then got hired as um, senior finance director, basically being in charge of uh, um, <clears throat> kind of all financial reporting, forecasting, financial analysis, basically finding ways to increase profitability for Christie's. And Christie's was back then um, a business with roughly six, seven billion dollars of, of sales worldwide. Um, and then uh, um, after about two years, I then got promoted also to become global head of strategy at Christie's. And maybe at the first first glance, auction hours, financial services, you know, wealth management, you know, looks very, very different. Um, but at the end of the day, it's actually very, very similar because um, clients in both worlds are at the center of everything that you have to do, right? And clients um, in both worlds are incredibly demanding. Uh, at Christie's, even more so than in <laughs> financial services because you're dealing with some really, really rich people. And I should probably say um, in my time there before at AWD, um, um, I did a lot of kind of strategic projects kind of looking at business that we could buy and business that we could sell and, and corporate finance um, stuff necessarily. And, you know, at Christie's, when you are in a world where basically the entire business model is to to buy and sell pieces of art, right? And, you know, um, buying and selling a business for 50 million, for example, is very, very complex, um, but you can build a financial model and then you know roughly how much the business is worth. But when you're buying and selling a painting, so let's say a square meter of canvas, yeah, where you can't build a financial model, <laughs> it's just kind of, kind of canvas, but basically some some paint on it. You know, how do you know that, that this one is worth, you know, one thousand pounds or one million or maybe fifty million, right? And then kind of yeah. convincing people to buy and sell uh, at these kind of prices was basically the essence of everything that we did at Christie's, and um, and there was an an absolutely kind of uh, um, uh, interesting time again. Uh, um, uh, um, met some amazing people there um, um, in this, this this environment. Um, yeah, was was a really really good time. No, fascinating. And how did you come to go from Christie's to to where you are now, Daniel? Yeah, good, good 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 question. Um, so so I should probably say um, I always I didn't really care like you know what industry or whatever it was kind of originally what I what I did. But uh, what was important for me was um, that I do, do stuff that I enjoy, right? And stuff where I can actually add value. And that's kind of how I kind of got to this various kind of things. Um, and um, and I spent about four and a half years at Christie's. And uh, it became clear when I for, so someone went to a party and I told someone, oh, I work at Christie's, that they expected me to be an art expert. And I learned a lot about art at Christie's. I so probably, <clears throat> you know, no more than the average person. Um, yeah. But... You know, I was at my heart more like a problem solver, a finance, a strategy, a corporate finance person. That's what I'd done in the past. And Christie's Maru was moving more and more away from that. And therefore, I decided to to, to leave Christie's um, and, um, you know, supported one or two startups on, on some, some ideas um, and worked a little bit as a consultant for one or two um, PE firms and, and hedge funds. Um, type of financial modeling assessment of one or two businesses in the uh, in this kind of sector, and then um, a former colleague, um, someone who was actually at the board of Chase De Vere back then, um, introduced me to a gentleman called Stuart Dyer, who was running a small M&A business <clears throat> and who was very very busy. And then I met Stuart. And Stuart said, "Hey, you know, I'm working on this one exciting project. Uh, um, can can you help?" 
And I said, yeah, okay, let's, 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 let's figure this out. Um, and we worked on this project together um, and it was incredibly successful. And then after about six months, we decided to, you know, um, basically start a new business um, as a partnership. And that's what we did roughly, roughly five years ago. And um, have since then built um, uh, an M&A advisory business uh, um, that is very much focused on the wealth management uh, um, sector. So it's about 80% of what we do, buy side, yeah. sell side, fundraising, um, a business that is growing incredibly fast. So we grow on average by about 25, 30% per, per year. And, um, you know, I think we're probably one of the leading businesses, M&A advisory businesses in the mid-market in the UK. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, this is, is an interesting dynamic between yourself and Stuart, isn't there? In that actually from a what do you call it, life stage or age, it's actually quite a significant difference. Can we, can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, you know, Stuart... Stuart um, was a partner at KPMG in the 80s, and he's um, 30 years older than I am. <clears throat> and I think, I think when we started to work together, we realized kind of two things in particular. Like one is we have um, the same values, which is, you know, hard work, always putting the client first and always making sure that you do stuff that makes sense. Yeah? And very often we tell clients not to do things, <laughs> um, even right. if you don't get a fee at the end of it. But our client appreciate kind of like an honest... Um, direct feedback, because uh, um, so, you know, at the end of the day, they need someone that they can trust, and and um, we again more than often tell our clients to not do certain things, not sell their business, or not buy another business, which means that we don't get a fee, but clients trust us um, if we kind of give them an honest, honest feedback. So Stuart and I also have the same 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 values, and but of course we're very different uh, different if you like kind of backgrounds. Yeah? So so when I started the business, for example, I didn't have any clients um, to be honest. Um, Stuart had an incredibly strong network and therefore we were a very good combination. Um, yeah. And then it turned out that kind of, <clears throat> you know, again, you know, um, the team always had kind of, we had always had one or two people kind of working for us and at the point we are seven, but it turned out that kind of, we also get Stuart and myself, one plus one turned out more to be, turned out to be more than, than, than two and therefore really, really we made sense. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just kind of unpick that. So you've grown the business to have, um, I think you're probably underselling it as a um, as, as one of the um, most reputed um, advisory businesses in in the mid tier space. I think I think you probably are the organisation that, that sits in that top one or two uh, spot, which which is impressive. But what do you see as the so you as a business get involved in larger, more complex deals, which I think reflects your your background and and, and your um, intellectual capacity. But what do you see as the significant challenges, whether that be in the market or whether it be on the uh, buy side of the the clients or the private equity houses that are looking to enter this market at the moment? What are the what are the constraints that you see? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we as a business are um, focused on transactions where the company value the enterprise value tends to be between 10 and 100 million yeah so which is kind of not the 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 absolute mega deals although we got involved in one or two of those as um, as part of a larger team and not the retiring ifa kind of kind of deals so, so we talk more about yeah like you know well-established businesses yeah um, and i think I think um, if you just kind of step back for a second, you know, we, we look at an industry that is that is fulfilling a very very important function for their for the clients, right? Because most of the of the money that is in <clears throat> managed by by wealth managers is in the end kind of saving for retirement, yeah. So so it's super important that um, these clients are looked after well, that nothing goes wrong, that the clients can retire or you know or finance kind of um, the education for their kids or whatever yeah so so that's really the money right and kind of wealth management is an industry where where you need to have a lot of trust in in in, in what would we do and although we ourselves don't manage, manage money directly but we're advising on m a transactions so when one firm sells to another firm and <clears throat> in every m a transaction you know you you also see change right because maybe you know, someone has a slightly different client proposition or someone, uh, um, 
you know, also has a discretionary fund manager attached to it and kind of and then changes the investment style or what things like this. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, with all the consolidation that goes on in this industry, and we have roughly 35 PE back consolidators at the moment in the market, and they're really? all trying to, well, most of them, you know, have a strategy as buy and build. So they all try to buy smaller businesses to get even, even, even bigger. You know, it is worthwhile to not forget that at the end of the day, there are, there are clients behind it. And, you know, even if some transaction makes sense from a, from a pure financial engineering point of view, you know, um, I'm of the view um, that an M&A transaction can only be successful when it creates also value for, for the clients. Because you know? um, at the end of the day, if the clients are unhappy, the clients will leave sooner, sooner or later, and then it wasn't worthwhile to buy to buy a business. Yeah? So when we look at an M&A transaction, of course, we do all the financial modeling, and of course, we do all the you know the the, the complex stuff if you like and and MLA transactions can be very very complex yeah but at the end of the day you talk about business right and business is there to serve clients and create value and uh, and that's always what we have in mind and therefore when we advising a, a, a seller on a potential sale we spend a lot of time to really understand the business to really understand staff and clients to ensure that that the buyers that we approach are buyers that um, are suitable for uh, um, this acquisition targets, and, and very often when we when we work for buyers, and we also do a lot of buy side work, uh, um, we spend a lot of time with the um, with the buyer to really ensure early on, okay, is that really a business that you want to buy? Is that really a business where you know the the client ethos is identical or at least very very similar? Um, to ensure that um, this becomes a long-term success. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I ask you a question? Sure. So, so we, there's in many ways that, see, so you're talking to the organisations that we interact with on a on a day-to-day -day basis, and um, our perspective when we look at these organisations is to help them, <coughs> if they're on the sort of buy side through this buy and build strategy to develop out their, their infrastructure and their whether it's leadership or board level capabilities as they, as they go through this journey with the end goal of <clears throat> needing your services to probably facilitate some sort of event right um but we're always talking about the makeup of the leadership team whether that be the diversity or just the, the functional responsibility that this business, these businesses should have as they scale. Mm -hmm. well, we sat down in London a, a few months back and he said something that kind of stuck in my mind that I wanted to pick up on on, on this call, which was the professional, uh, the professionalism of the board or the diversity of the board can have a direct um, impact on the valuation of the business at a point of an event. So can you just share your appreciation of how, whether it's a, a diverse board or how the makeup of the leadership team can have an impact on the um, evaluation and that's a strategic opportunity for that business? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we step back a little bit, um, you know, businesses normally go through certain life cycles, yeah? And you need a very, very different different skill set to start a business. And you need to, you know, um, when you kind of have got to a point where you have maybe 10, 20 staff members, or when you then kind of go to your second office or third office, you need very, very different skill sets with these different, different stages. And I think looking at the UK wealth management industry, you have at the moment roughly 5,000 FCA registered firms out there, of which roughly 2,500 or 600 are one-man bands or two-man bands, way, way too small. And then kind of there's a very large number of if like mid-sized firms. But yeah. there is only a very, very small number of nationwide firms, if that makes sense. Yeah? Or some of them say that they're nationwide, but you know, just kind of to go back to my beginning. So if you would have asked in Germany, like a random person in the street, name me a financial advisor, there were, were two or three brands out there that people would know. AWD was one of the, one of the two or three, yeah because they would sp sponsor, for example, the Olympic team or, you know, the, the you know, the football team or God knows what. So people would know the brands. In the UK, there's maybe one um, truly national brand, but, but even then, kind of, if you ask the average person on the street, 
they would not kind of name them most likely if you ask them for financial advice, right? So what I'm trying to say with that is that most most of the businesses in the UK operate um, subscale. Yeah, so, uh, you know the industry is about to consolidate, and the consolidation will will continue. And as you can kind of con continue to consolidate and build larger and larger businesses, you need managers that have very, very different skill set. Yeah? So you need to have managers that can build truly kind of national businesses and maybe, maybe even international businesses. And, um, you know, uh, um, I'm not necessarily sure kind of that, that diversity alone is like um, uh, a key success factor for, for, for um, success of, of a business. I think what's more important is that you have um, um, a management team that has the right skill set um, that is kind of complementary for the right, for the stage which the business is in him yeah. that's really interesting yeah and 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 just to challenge that a little bit more or to unpick that a little bit more is probably a better point you've been in a business that is 11 countries 6,000 advisors you know a market cap of in excess of a billion pound sale um and you've seen countless mid-sized firms um from your advisory position, what do you see as the difference in skill set, specifically with someone who's capable of running a three, four, five hundred adv advice uh, relationship manager business as opposed to six thousand, as you've seen before? Yeah, um, that is a very, very good, good, good question, and I give you give you two answers to it. Yeah, so if you look at AWD, again, the business kind of within 20 years from one man to IPO and actually delisting at the end of the day, right? So amazing. You, you know, uh, when you start one man, you need to be a good salesperson to find new clients. Yeah. Then you need to kind of um, try to find other people who can open up new offices in a similar way that you kind of actually operate. So you do have kind of systems and management in place. And then when you kind of list a business, you need to have kind of the skills to, to, you know, deal with investors, right? Because you have kind of external people who ask you different questions, right? You need to have a diversified board and and, 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 and so on. Um, yeah, and this gives you maybe maybe a little bit of a bit of a bit of an idea kind of um, of some of the different skill set that you need during during that kind of journey. But looking at the UK market specifically, and that's kind of the second part of my answer. Um, I think when you look look at businesses that are somewhere in the middle, you know, at the moment these businesses face a lot of kind of challenges. Generally speaking, the industry is not growing very fast. Maybe growing at three, four, five percent per year. Agreed. Um, and there's huge pressure on profitability within those businesses. There's a there's a huge pressure from from the FCA to, you know, to improve certain processes and compliance and regulatory kind of um, kind of kind of things. So um, <clears throat> I think. At the moment, one of the top um, uh, um, kind of skill sets that kind of the, the, the boards or executives, the executive teams of these businesses need is the ability to um, um, employ technology to really run a very, very efficient business that you know can can deliver incredibly high quality standards to their clients. Yeah, you know, uh, um, is complying with all the regulatory uh, requirements, and quite frankly, you know. Every other sector has kind of changed in the last five, ten years through technology. Yeah, um, you know, we all use iPhones every single every single day. Um, it is, um, in my view, unbelievable that there, are, you know, there are certain businesses out there that still operate largely on paper, right? And yeah. and uh, um, and so on. And and whilst this has a certain charm to it, and and of course, business is always personal, and there needs to be a personal touch. You know, there are so many things that can be automated, and you know, in order to to ensure. Um, um, better quality, better outcome for clients, and also to make the the job of kind of administrative people more, um, yeah, more 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 attractive. Because let's be honest, um, machines, and particularly now with AI um, and and some basic robotics, can do certain things better than we can do as human beings. Yeah, in particular when we talk about simple and repetitive tasks. So. Uh, um, deploying technology is like one of the key skills that I think um, is needed at some of the of the mid-market firms that want to get, get bigger and bigger and bigger. But in order to do that, you need to have um, the scale and size, yeah? Because, you know, like figuring it out um, is very, very hard. But once you figure it out, it makes no difference if you serve 100 advisors or 1,000 advisors, yeah? Because the technology doesn't really care. You might need a few more servers or and nowadays everything is in the cloud, so it doesn't really make any, any difference, right? And then the other thing, which is of course always always important, is um, you know again business is personal, and I think no matter at which stage you are in, in, in your business, you need to have the skills to um, 
yeah, convince people yeah, to join your business as clients and also as staff because, you know, without kind of clients and staff, um, you have no business and, um, you know, um, being a people's person and attracting the right people to your business um, is, is one of the most important skills that I think um, businesses of all sides need. Them. Yeah. Uh, we definitely share your sentiment, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so at one point before we'll start to kind of wrap the conversation up, um, and you know, I will inevitably send this conversation at some point in the future to somebody who is uh, a founder of a business who's thinking about an event in the in the not too distant future. Um, or similarly, yeah. So we'll focus on that. So to the IFA of the mid-sized firm, the founder, what would be your um, in a few in a few minutes, your your key observations that they should consider, whether it be from a P and L optimization perspective or, or, or from a, a culture perspective, that they should get right before going into any discussions around any form of transaction, whether that be a listing or a trade sale or or, or whatever. Yeah. I think there there are a few aspects to it. First of all, um, you know, if you go back five or ten years, yeah, M and E was something that was secret. Yeah, people didn't really talk about it, and you know, then you saw something in the press, and everyone got excited about this. And it seems, for whatever reason, in the last maybe two or three years in the UK, you know, every business owner has been approached by brokers and PE back consolidators, and people talk about M and E, you know, all, all, all the all the time, and. And people kind of say like, oh, if you sell now, you make lots of money and so on. So, so the perception has, has changed, right? But um, what I'm trying to say is just because someone asks you um, if you want to sell doesn't mean that you have to sell. Yeah, I think it is very, very important that you um, figure out for yourself in the first place, okay, why are you running this business? Is that something that you actually enjoy and, 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 and so on? And, and if you want to sell the business, why would you actually sell the business? Yeah. Hey. Uh, um, and I think... Being very clear about the why, what you want to achieve, is, is super important because uh, um, uh, um, in some cases selling business might be right, in some cases it might be wrong. Yeah? And when you have decided that you might want to sell the business, I think it's more important than to think about, okay, okay, I want to sell my business now, but what are my red lines? Yeah? Would I sell to someone who completely changes the, the pricing structure for the clients? Would I sell to someone who is completely changing the way we operate here? Yeah? Uh, um, so, uh, um, would I would I sell to someone who wants to change the name of the company? So there are kind of a lot of kind of small and big points that's worthwhile to to think about before before you even start about thinking about it, right? And once you have kind of figured out these kind of points, so what you want to achieve and what you don't want to achieve, so the red the red lines, then you have kind of basically defined your goal, if, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, in a positive and a negative way, and then it's worthwhile to to work backwards. To achieve this goal, so so for example, let's say, let's say you have an operational problem in the business. You're just kind of very inefficient with certain processes. Yeah, um, so um, you could sell to someone who has already figured that out, and then you don't have to solve that problem um, before before a sale. But if you sell to someone who hasn't figured it out, yeah, um, then you need to solve that problem. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and therefore it's worthwhile to think about this in, in advance. And you know, um, obviously, <clears throat> kind of. Uh, uh, um, the, the, the most important metric that people people talk about in the industry is, is the is the EBITDA multiple, and everyone asks me the question, "Oh, what multiples are getting paid here?" Yeah? And um, and of course, this is a very important question. And you know, like um, I think about this every single day, and every other email that I have is kind of about kind of valuation <laughs> in some shape or form. But at the end of the day, uh, um, that doesn't really matter, right? Because um, a business will look very very different in your hands as an owner then it might look like in the hands of the new owner, because yeah? they might make changes to the business. They might have another business that they want to put it together with or whatever. Yeah? And therefore, in terms of kind of valuation and preparation, it's worthwhile to, to find the best owner for a business. Yeah? So for example, we sold recently a business that and you looked in, the, in their accounts, their profitability was um, pretty much zero. zero. Um, but it was very, very clear that this business would look in the hands of the new owner very, very different because the buyer and the seller were incredibly complementary. Yeah, so the seller kind of had yeah. something that the buyer didn't have, and the buyer had something that the seller didn't have, and it was like, like a good marriage, right? You know, like a perfect, perfect fit. Yeah? 
And I think that is kind of also the job of a good M&A advisor. It's like, of course, at the end of the day, the numbers need to, need to work for everyone. Yeah. But the numbers are a function of, of fit. And if the fit is right, and if there's a true win-win situation between the seller, the buyer, and of course, the clients, um, then normally the numbers follow automatically. That was fantastic. Yeah. No, that was really good. Um, my, my brain is going off at <laughs> how we can use that. But um, no, amazing. So, cool. so, let's, so you've had a really interesting career across um, different countries and with AWD, with a really broad exposure across 11 different countries. And I think um, I'm 29 now. You know, and you at 29, you were sat on an ex co-member of, of Chase to Bear in the UK. And, you know, you know how, how these these experiences are are really interesting. But if we if we take a moment to kind of reflect and, and look back across your entire career, what would you say is your key observation that you have that you think is useful to pass down to somebody who is at an earlier stage in their career is looking at what tomorrow may look like. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think, you know, um, when, when you're young, you, you have no idea if you should go into industry X or Y or Z. Mm. Um, I think it's very important just to, to try to figure out what you're good at and, um, uh, um, and then kind of find something where you could apply your skills to, to you know, because normally when you're good at something, you will achieve kind of exceptional results. And, um, you know, when, when I started my career, you know, like when, again, being from East Germany, when I was young, I had no network. My parents and people in, in the area or whatever, but they couldn't give, get me yeah. the fancy internship at, at, a, at an investment bank or something. This just kind of couldn't, right? Um, no one was waiting for me. And I think, you know, that's the same for most other people. But, you know, if you know what you what you want to do and if you're good at it and if you can demonstrate that you bring that you bring something to the table and you bring value to the table, um, I've learned that even the most senior people, even a CEO of a listed business or whatever, will listen to you if you can demonstrate that you can, can actually add value. Mm. Um, and therefore, just kind of focusing on what you're good at, focusing how you can make things better than others uh, can do, and then everything else follows automatically. Nice. Okay. And on that note, we'll move to our quick fire round, Daniel. Sure. The most exciting part of the conversation. <laughs> So if, if you haven't listened to an episode, we ask the same five questions to every guest that's ever been on. The idea is to not think too much about it and just respond with the first thing that comes, comes to mind. I've got the five questions here. Are you, are you happy if we kind of whistle through them? Sure, fire away. Okay, so Daniel, what are you currently reading? Um, I'm reading currently a book that's called... Um... Uh, something like against the gods and it might sound religious it isn't at at all it's a book about um, the invention of risk and the invention of statistics and basically you like like many many thousand years ago people were going on a on a a boat on a journey to trade somewhere right you know like and uh, and you know and they figured out that in eight out of ten journeys they they came back and in two out of ten journeys they didn't came back or whatever and it was kind of called it you know an act of god you know like if if they if they didn't survive or whatever. But people then started to record these kind of things. And then kind of, for example, um, you know, to measure risk and also to price in risk when they kind of did their trades. Yeah? Uh, uh, absolutely fascinating books about a very, very boring topics, the invention of risk management and statistics, that it's incredibly well written. <laughs> nice. Yeah, good. And um, some people struggle with this question, but who is your idol? Um, I don't really have a specific idol, you know, like um, I, I have quite a few people that I admire for certain for certain skills. Uh, yeah. um, um, but I've also I've actually met quite a few of, of, of the people that I thought when I was younger that were my, my heroes, if you like. Um, and um, and whilst I was impressed with certain things, certain attitudes, certain knowledge or whatever that they had, I also saw in some cases the, the opposite side. Um, yeah. and I've therefore, therefore decided that, look. I admire certain people for certain things that they do, but you know, people are people with strengths and weaknesses, and no one is a god or anything like that. Uh, um, and so that's my my view. Okay, all right. I won't push you for one, but um, in one word, how would your partner describe you? Um, determined. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a nice word, isn't it? Yeah. What's your pet hate? Um, I'm not really into pets whatsoever. <laughs> okay. Pets. Yeah. Okay, and this is this is definitely the most exciting question, but Signia are paying, you can go anywhere in the world for one week <laughs> on holiday. Where do you go? Um, I would certainly go to California. I've spent a lot of time um, in California as, as a student multiple times, and I really like Monterey, Pebble Beach. I'm a passionate golfer, yeah. so um, that is really the place to be from my point of view. Yeah. Not as warm as you think in Monterey, is it? Everyone tells you it's warm. It's cold. No, it's not It's not like not like Ibiza or anything like this, but uh, no. it's a really, really nice place. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. But no, that was... Um, it was a lot of fun. So thank you for agreeing to come on, Daniel. Thanks very much for your time, John. <laughs>